What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is an economy of one, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Jason Riley. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and member of their editorial board. He's also a commentator for Fox News. He's author of Please Stop Helping Us, how Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks and to Succeed, and his most recent book, False Black Power. Jason, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me. You know, I got amused reading your book right out of the gate because you use the movie Barbershop as kind of a backdrop, I guess, of starting to make your point. And I had to laugh because no matter what comes out, what movie, what book, whatever, somebody is usually offended and wants to boycott it, don't they? <laughs> yes, well, I guess so these days. Um, it's probably even getting worse, um, actually, than it was when that, when that movie first came out. But, um, but yeah, I, I thought it was um, a good way to talk about um, what sort of how blacks discuss some of these issues among themselves mm-hmm. when whites aren't around. And I thought that the movie was an insight into this, how blacks discuss race and class and, uh, you know, racism and, and, and so forth. And, and so, yeah, I thought it was a good way to get into the subject. You know, one of the things you mentioned early uh, in your book was that uh, blacks, and I, I, I can extrapolate other minorities as well, uh, need to put themselves in a better position to take advantage of existing opportunities. Now, uh, explain that to me a little bit. Well, what I mean is that um, I think what is holding blacks back today is a lack of human capital, the development of human capital, skills, habits, attitudes, behaviors, values, um, a development of uh, cultural sensibilities that have allowed other groups to, to rise from, from poverty to prosperity. And I think that on that, when that was a priority, mm-hmm. um, you, saw, you saw progress being made. You saw racial gaps in income and uh, employment and educational attainment all closing. This would have been in the first half of the 20th century in particular. In the second half of the 20th century, however, the black leadership shifted strategies. They started to focus more on attaining political power. They thought that putting more blacks in office, uh, more black elected officials, would be enough to lead to more uh, economic prosperity among blacks. So since the 60s in particular, that has been the focus. And, And the book, False Black Power, is really a critique of that strategy. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was one of my points I wanted to make because 
there's a been a, a lot of progress over the last several decades of blacks becoming mayors, governors, teachers, doctors, superintendents, and even president of the United States, most powerful position in the world. And yet, in, in reading your book, that really hasn't advanced the individual very much, has it? No, no, it hasn't. And 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 you're right. The, the strategy. Uh, on its own terms, has been successful, as you just mentioned. Uh, we have a lot more black elected officials than we used to have. Um, mm-hmm. In 1970, there were fewer than 1,500. Uh, by 2010, there were more than 10,000, wow. including the governors and, 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 and the mayors and so forth, and, and, and a twice-elected black president. We're also talking about mayors of major cities here, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, New York, uh, Detroit, Atlanta. Um, uh, but if you look at how the black poor fared uh, while all of this political clout was being uh, attained, if you look at Coleman Young's Detroit or Marion Barry's Washington, D.C., or Maynard Jackson's Atlanta, the black poor got poorer under those regimes. That's not to say they got poorer because there was a black mayor. Right. The point is that uh, political clout is no guarantee that a group will, will rise economically, and that's what I'm getting at here. It's not that blacks should disengage from politics or not run from office or, or, and so forth. It's that this over-reliance, however, on political saviors to help improve the fortunes of the black underclass economically, I think, is, 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 is not a, a very efficient way of moving forward. Now, uh, how much of that is an attitude of being part of a group, you know, our guy got elected president, our guy got elected governor, rather than an individual mentality. I mean, do people identify with a successful position and therefore feel a little bit more successful because of that and don't really individualize and and achieve on their own? Well, yes, there's certainly a racial and ethnic pride in this country, and certainly not limited uh, to blacks. I mean, you, you, you go out on St. Patrick's Day or Columbus Day, and you're going to see other groups celebrating sure. their yeah. heritage. That's not unique uh, to any one group. Um, and certainly there are a lot of black Americans who are quite proud that we had a black president. And, and Obama himself said um, he thinks that, you know, that's obviously one of the reasons um, – he was elected, uh, blacks feeling very proud uh, to put a black person in the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, my point, however, is that the strategy of uh, encouraging uh, ethnic or, or racial block voting, this whole racial identity politics um, mindset that you see particularly on the left, um, I, I don't think it's doing blacks any favors, um, and particularly when that is prioritized over any particular policy that the person is pushing this whole idea that it's the black thing to do to support Obama or it's the the, the, the woman thing to do to support Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm wary of that of that uh, sort of political strategy. But and when it comes to blacks in particular, I don't think it's it's worked out very well. And you know, Obama becomes president and then he begins acting like a politician does, which is to look out for his own political interests, do what is necessary for him to get. Reelected, and what you often see, and what we did see under Obama, is that his own political agenda did not often align perfectly with the needs of the black underclass. So you look at an issue like education or school choice, which is overwhelmingly popular 
in low-income black communities. Mm-hmm. Yet Obama gets elected and tries to shut down a school voucher program in Washington, D.C., and another one in the state of Louisiana, not because they don't work or because they're not popular, but because the teachers' unions, which is an important supporter of Democrats and Obama, oppose school choice and oppose these reforms, and he's got to do their bidding. He's got to put uh, them ahead of the needs of the black underclass, and, and that's what you see happening. And, and, and so under Obama, you saw racial gaps in, in income, in poverty, in home ownership all widen under Obama. And, and, and so I think, again, it's just, I think, more evidence of the limits of this strategy of pursuing political power in hopes that socioeconomic gains will just flow naturally from that. You know, you, you make a very powerful statement. Uh, you make several powerful statements in the book, but one of them that, that I wrote down was exactly what you said, the, the misguided social policies are causing the problems versus racism. Now, we'll never get rid of racism in this country, I don't believe, and, or in anywhere in the world. But how much of that is the misguided social policies of, like, Johnson under the Great Society and stuff versus out-and-out prejudice, racism, malevolent behavior? Well, uh, you're right. I, I don't think um, we'll live to see the day when racism has been vanquished from America. But I'd also argue that it doesn't need to be vanquished in order for blacks to, to get ahead and to um, close some of these, uh, these gaps that we see. And I think the evidence of that, again, is what was going on in the first half of the 20th century when uh, racism was much more prevalent and widespread and even legal in the United States under Jim Crow laws and so forth. Yet, again, you saw racial gaps closing, um, and those trends would... Um, and again, that was also a period when blacks had almost no political clout. Uh, once again, I think proving my point that, uh, that, that political power is neither sufficient nor, nor necessary for blacks to move ahead. But many of those gains that were occurring in the first half of the 20th century, we would see stall or, or we would even see retrogression in the second half of the century in the wake of all of these efforts to help blacks, the great society programs that you referenced, the war on poverty, and so forth. Um, and, and again, all this acquisition of black political power has done little to lift the black underclass. So uh, I, I think we need to get back to what was, was happening in black America in the first half of the 20th century. And one, one thing that we saw back then uh, that really stands out is the, is the state of the black family mm-hmm. in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, you know, as late as 1960, two out of three black kids were being raised by a mother and a father. Uh, today, more than 70% are not. And in some of our inner cities, it's as high as 80 or 90%. And I think that alone has a lot to do with uh, the outcomes we see today. And, 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 and racism, while it still exists, I don't believe is the major barrier to, uh, to, to blacks getting ahead in America in the 21st century. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the things that, that you talk about in uh, False Black Power is that young people who have a high unemployment rate, young black people, uh, high unemployment, have little interest in finding legitimate employment and even are more attracted to, to crime. Now, now, why is that? Is that also part of the, the family unit breakdown? Yes, I think that, that, has, that speaks to values and that speaks to culture. I mean, you, you can have, I mean, I complain all the time about the state of uh, the, 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 the quality of schools in black ghettos public schools in particular, 
Um, but you can have the best school in the world down the street. If you don't value education, it's not going to do you much good. Um, so I think that there are government policies that can help or hurt this situation. And when it comes to things like black unemployment, I often point to minimum wage laws, which I think are pricing a lot of uh, less skilled, less experienced people out of the labor force, many of whom happen to be black. At the same time, however, you do need a work ethic um, to take advantage of, of the job opportunities that are out there when they arise. And so, you know, you've got to come at this in, in, in various ways. And, and if, if we are going to develop that proper work ethic, um, we're going to need a couple of things to happen. A, we're going to need the government to stop putting in place incentives not to work um, by, you know, removing time limits or work requirements from government handouts. Um, you need the right incentives in place. But also you're going to need a, a, a cultural change. You're going to need uh, a value system. Attitudes towards work have to change and so forth. So it's going to be a combination of efforts. It's easy to point out the the success of people like uh, Colin Powell, of Ben Carson, uh, Michael Jordan, even then, that kind of stuff. When really the success, I think, of middle America is the, the mom and dad that gets up in the morning, goes to the assembly line and puts on a gas tank on a Jeep all day long, comes home, pays their bills, and plays ball with their kid in the backyard. I mean, it, we don't see a lot of the the success stories that are just kind of boring and, and everyday for most of us, do we? Um, well, no. I mean, and, and, I, and I think you don't see that. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't think you see that enough in, in black communities, in, in these um, low-income black communities. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that's not the norm, and that is the problem. Uh, finally, Jason, we got about 30 seconds left. In, in your book, one of the unique things, and I've never saw this before in, in anybody else's book, you publish a couple essays of people that react to a lot of your statements and react to your book and answer those in your book. So most people don't put the, the responses in their book as well as you did. What, what prompted you to put that in? Well, that was uh, the publisher's idea, and it was part of, of the agreement when they, when they came to me and asked me to write the book. Uh, the Templeton Press, which published the book, um, has put out a series of books like this where one person writes a pretty lengthy essay and then invites uh, two people to respond with much shorter essays, and that's what we did here. I thought it worked out well. A number yeah. of people like you have commented on it. They sort of appreciate uh, the back and forth, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. We've been speaking with Jason Riley, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, author of the new book, False Black Power. Jason, this has been a real treat for me. I appreciate all your time. It's a terrific book. It was a great read for me, and we're going to recommend it to our listeners, put it up on our website. And you do good work, and I hope we get a chance to uh, talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Government hates small business. Why do you ask? I'm glad you asked. I will tell you why. Government hates small business because it's very hard for them to get any type of uh, small business cooperation. 
What do I mean by that? Think of in the day when everybody was responsible for paying their own income tax. Remember those days? Uh, Probably not because we're all too young for that. Think of how easy it is, how efficient it is to make a large corporation essentially an arm of the federal government. Now, what do I mean by this? Employers are required, required to withhold taxes from their employees' wages. And then they're required to send them in immediately. The government didn't want to wait for their money, their money. So I can say to a company like General Motors or Microsoft or Apple or whoever, I'm the federal government. I can say to them, look, uh, you're the employer. Withhold taxes according to these pay schedules or tax rates from all of your employees every pay period and send it to us in one big check. And if you don't, uh, we're not going to hold the employee responsible. We're going to hold you responsible for not only paying your share, your match, but also the employee's share. So think of a million small business owners with one or none or two or three employees versus an employer with 30,000 employees. Government would rather talk to General Motors, Microsoft, Apple, these big employers. They'd rather talk to one person there than talk to a million separate business owners, which is why partially why there's more and more rules on small business owners, because the more difficult they can make it for you to be in business, the happier they are. Less likely you are to stay in business, the less likely people are to start a business once they know all the hassle. So the government really doesn't like the small business owner. The politicians will say, oh, backbone of America, We love the small business owner. That's where jobs are created, blah, 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 blah. But they really despise the small business owner, regardless of what they say, regardless of what Congress says. Doesn't like the small business owner. It goes against everything the the government likes to control. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Eric Bolin. He's a co-host of the Fox News specialist and best-selling author of Wake Up America and has recently released New York Times bestseller The Swamp, Washington's murky pool of corruption and cronyism and how Trump can drain it. Eric, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I uh, read through the book, and, and one of the things that that struck me right out of the gate was you go clear back in history and, and talk about the swamp and the corruption that happened over essentially our, our pretty much our existence as, as America. Is it simply human nature to, to become a swamp creature uh, when given the opportunity, or is the swamp converting people? Well, I think both. I think once um, 
So, so the way that the genesis of the book is I was hearing Donald Trump in, in those big campaign rallies and everyone's yelling, drain the swamp, lock her up, but also train the swamp. And I was, had been very confident he was going to win the presidency. So I started writing the book literally before he won mm. in the anticipation he was going to win. Uh, as to what he's going to have to, have to do once he gets to D.C. to drain the swamp. And I, I couldn't believe how many stories, current stories, uh, that were, the shenanigans that were going on right now, corruption and cronyism, possibly even crime. And as I compiled stories to start going further back to see when this, you know, when this activity, when this, I don't know, environment started. And you're right, it went clear back to the beginning of the Republic. In fact, at one point, I was looking for a really uh, you know, compelling picture to put on the cover of the book. And the stories were, were coming. I was writing. It was going very well. And publishers said, hey, what do you want to do for the cover? I said, let me just look around a little bit. So I come Googling around. And <laughs> I happen to have, um, I type in the swamp in, in a Google search bar looking for images. And, and I happen to have had D.C. in there already. And I hit send and search. And, and sure enough, the, there's a picture that comes up from 1860. Um, from the National Archives, and there's actually a photograph of the, the, the Capitol building being built in D.C., and it was, it was on a literal swamp. There's a, a big, was watery, murky water and, and trees and vines, and it looked real swampy, a broken, burned-out canoe off to the side. And the Capitol building, the, the dome hadn't even been placed on the top yet. Um, and I said, you know what, this is the right project for the right time. <laughs> anyway, I put that picture on, on the inside and the back, in front and back inside covers of the book. So it, it, was, it, was, it was amazing that it was a literal swamp. So it's gone all the way back to the beginning of the Republic. Once again, why is that? Is it, is it human nature that when we get in a position of power, we, we, yeah. we take advantage of it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, Lord Afton said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And he was right. It, it seems that once you get power and then mix in money, which is the more modern version of the swamp, the money part, um, it, it, it corrupts people, corrupts men and women. They can't help themselves, apparently. Um, so the earlier stories, as I found, were more, more along the lines of um, seedy behavior, let's put it that way. There's a lot mm-hmm. of sex scandals going on between powerful men and women and their wives and whatnot. And as money got introduced into D.C. as it became a war profit center, um, the, the scandals changed to money-driven scandals, a lot of lobbying scandals, a lot of pay-for-play, a lot of cronyism going on there, some of it legal and some of it not too legal. One of the, the book really highlights the corruption and cronyism on both sides of the aisle. Um, I have Republican friends who called me and, you know, after reading a, a section said, hey, why did you mention me in this book? And they're mad at me. I said, well, you know, we know what you did. And, you know, my readers want to know what you did, too. So I, I'm losing a few friends over it, but that's okay. We're shining the light um, on both sides of the aisle. If you're, if you're corrupt or if you're uh, under the influence of the swamp, you're going you're gonna to get called out. You mentioned money and, and lobbying, and that was one of the chapters in the book. And how did that grow into what it is today? I mean, it, it seems like the lobbyists, everything is geared toward money. I mean, we're, we're looking at the 2018 elections coming up and already in the local papers we talk about which politicians have what size war chests and yeah. and that kind of stuff why has money become the the electable issue here well because it influences people um and and there's a lot of power that goes with the influenced vote in bc so special interest groups realize that they could sway men and women by simply bribing them it's like a legal bribery system if you you or i did try to do that at a at a traffic stop, we go to jail. But these guys are doing it left and right in D.C. because somehow they made it legal there. Um, 
you know, we send the elected officials to D.C. to represent us. And they'll, they'll get there and maybe, you know, within minutes completely figuring, trying to figure out a way to, to stay elected because it's such a good, it's such a good job. Um, so a, a, a congressman or a senator makes 175 grand a year. That's what they make. Mm-hmm. After taxes, they probably bring home somewhere around, I don't know, 90 or $100,000 a year. So a lot of money, but certainly not enough to amass a massive amount of wealth. Somehow they'll spend 10 or 15 years in, in Congress and leave with $10 million in their pocket. Something had to go on in between. And what happened in between were all these special, special interest groups who have thrown billions upon billions of dollars into lobbyist pockets to influence uh, Congress elected official votes. It's a closed system. It's a rigged system. We, the taxpayer, the voter, never get a represented. Or we're always getting the short end of the stick. The congressman gets his, his, his wallet filled. The lobbyist gets his bank account raised, and the special interest group gets their vote the way they want and, and make, you know, makes their businesses more, more lucrative. So everyone gets something except us, the taxpayer. Now, using the analogy of draining the swamp, can the swamp be drained without the swamp creatures being changed? It seems like a, a swamp creature is a swamp creature, whether he's in a swamp yeah. or not. You know, yeah, I mean, he, he, you can't change the creature. I, mean, I think the analogy is can you teach an old dog new tricks, and you probably can't. And I think that's why Trump is having such a hard time in D.C. right now. Look, he, everything he's doing on the economy is just off the charts great. I mean, we're, we're, mm-hmm. the economy is – you wouldn't know it because, you know, the mainstream media is so focused on what, what, what Donald Trump Jr. is tweeting or what Donald's tweeting in the morning or who, who they're meeting with. None of that really matters. What matters to us is the, our bank accounts. Are we getting uh, – sort of standard of living being raised? And under Donald Trump, it certainly is. Um, so, But he's getting such pushback in D.C. because – there's swamp creatures on both sides of the aisle. So he's mm-hmm. got Democrats who are trying to undermine his, his presidency. But he's also got establishment Republicans who didn't want to see him win. Even Probably would have preferred Hillary winning instead of Donald Trump because he is the one who risks blowing up the whole system. One of the first things he's already said is you can't, lobby, you can't go to a lobbying firm for five years after you work in the White House. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's unheard of, and that's that's great news because that's one of the ways to drain the swamp. People who go to D.C. with the, with the express purpose not to help the the, the the republic, but to figure out a way to to make some um, contacts in in an administration, and then go sell those contacts to a lobbying firm. That goes on all the time, and that's detrimental. That that is the, the current, the modern day swamp defined. You know, you've got a lot of history and, and experience in business and and uh, uh, commodities and, and Wall Street and that kind of stuff. Uh, one of the big things that, that we're seeing today, as, as I'm sure you have, is uh, regulations, regulations yeah. everywhere. And you mentioned in the book that, you know, part of the reason some companies move overseas is because of regulations. And while all this has been going on with Russia and tweeting and and that kind of stuff, uh, President Trump is uh, kind of quietly uh, reversing a lot of those regulations, isn't he? Yeah, for, from day one, in fact, that's, he had said that the minute he takes office, he's going to do that. And he was you know, inaugurated on a Friday. The first thing, I even think he did it over the weekend. I can't <laughs> remember, but the very first thing he did was he started rolling back executive order regulations that Obama put in place. And look what's happened. We have, um, right now we're sitting on an economy with the most employed Americans in history, 153 million, 100,000. There's never been that many Americans employed in the country, period. So that's one area. Uh, home prices are going up to 15-year highs, sometimes all-time highs, depending on what type of home you're talking about, home sales. 
um, the labor market, uh, uh, I just mentioned, the stock markets are off the charts. Uh, the stock markets are making record highs week after week. So from an economic standpoint, he was right that he saw that the regulations were, were straining and holding back American businesses. Um, and, and what he did is he took the news from, from away from, from the, the yoke off the uh, yoke of American neck of the American businesses, and it seems to be working just fine. That's that was the, one of the first things he did, and I think that was the first way to to drain the swamp by getting some of that uh, political capital you get by by performing you know, turning the economy around. Mm-hmm. It's not Obama's economy. A lot of people are saying all these positives you talk about in the economy are because of what Obama did. No way. There's no money manager worth his salt. There's no business owner uh, with any experience at all who knows anything, and there's no homeowner that knows anything about what's going on, that they would invest money in their own business, home, or uh, investment based on something that happened in the past. They all, everyone invests on what's going to happen going forward, and it's the optimism that Trump uh, is rolling back regulations that's given these people the optimism to go ahead and invest, and that's why the, the numbers look so good. In reading through the swamp, you're very objective. You don't don't show favoritism to, to Republicans or Democrats because it's it's both sides of the aisle. With all of Congress is doing it, I mean the the big big one out there is is repealing Obamacare. They they sent something like 39 repeals to President Obama and he vetoed them all. Uh, and now we can't get one to to President Trump. Is Congress just going to jack around for? for four or eight years and kind of wait out President Trump so they can go back to business as usual? So here's what I think about health care. Um, I honestly think that the Republicans, these are my friends, I think the Republicans are uh, it's just as much guilty as, as swamp feelings as Democrats, mm-hmm. in, especially in this health care bill. We had seven years, I'm a Republican, we had seven years to fix the problem and to come up with some, a solution, not just you know repeal Obamacare, but replace it with something better. And they haven't done it. They hadn't done it. Or maybe they had. You know, here's, here's something to think about. If you look into this, you read the book, you realize that almost nobody's immune to, to the dealings in the swamp. Special interest group, especially when we talk about uh, health care, you're talking about one-sixth of the economy, uh, more than a trillion dollars per year of the economy. There are a lot of special interest groups, a lot of corporations, health care providers, a lot of them tied to what, what comes out of that health care bill. It's very, very possible that the Republicans – have been leaned on or whined and dined to the point where they don't change things too much because it was so lucrative for all those groups under Obamacare that they came up with something kind of looks just like Obamacare. So there's a very good chance that they're, they've been affected by the swamp and haven't changed anything, not because they're incompetent, because they've been paid off to, to not do anything, to look the other way. Now, we we got about a minute left, Eric. I, I know that, uh, once again, your history, your your experience, your research, you, you've got advice for President Trump in the book on how to drain the swamp. In addition to that, what can we do? What, what What's our responsibility vote, as, vote. as uh, Americans here? Vote for Trump. Um, he... He is the first guy that ever I've ever heard of. The first thing, one of the first things he did um, publicly is he, you know, Air Force One and Air Force Two. He didn't order those. Congress ordered those, right? Mm-hmm. It's time to replace the planes. First thing, think about that. One, have you ever heard a president ask how much does this cost? No. A president? No. No. Nor have I. And that's one of the first things he did. He said, you know, and he's going to be flying around on those jets. It didn't, you know. He's actually trying to save money for the American people on something that he himself is going to be using. He's the guy to, to drain the swamp if there ever is going to be one. So I would, I would just encourage people to support the man. And generally, people do. Don't not forget what you just watch on TV or you read in the you know, New York Times or, or Washington Post. 
he has massive, massive support outside of the major cities. I, I know I've been out there, you know, talking to people about the book, and he has massive support. So I've continued to do that. that that'll do the trick. Excellent. Well, Eric, this has been a real treat for me, a real honor. Read your first book, Wake Up America, The Nine Virtues That Made Our Nation Great and Why We Need Them More Than Ever. Terrific book. This one, uh, The Swamp, Washington's Murky Pool of Corruption and Cronyism and How Trump Can Drain It. Excellent book as well. I I watch you all the time on Fox. Really appreciate you spending a little time with us. And uh, I'm going to recommend your book to all of our listeners and get it up on our website. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much. Funny thing, Trump uh, tweeted about the book. It immediately shot up to number two. (laughs) Uh, It's sitting on number three on the New York Times bestseller list and out its debut week. Yeah, I think Um, it opened at number three. On Amazon, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's... That's terrific. All right, so thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Eric. Have a good day. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Our payday loans harmful? Are check cashing stores ripping people off? Well, it's interesting that I ask. Actually, it's interesting that somebody else asked. But there was an Ivy League professor who spent four months working in a South Bronx check cashing store just to learn about the business and the people that use it. And The prevailing wisdom uh, is that customers would be better off using a bank. Most of us use a bank to do our business as far as cashing checks and, and paying bills and that kind of stuff. But some people are uh, unbanked or underbanked, maybe even unbankable. And so they use check cashing stores to cash checks, obviously, but also to pay their bills and uh, get money orders, that kind of stuff. So this lady uh, went into one of the largest um, check cashing store, I don't know, chains or franchises or something um, in the Bronx just to see. And what she found was very surprising. One of the things she found was these people know exactly what they're doing. They know what fees they're paying, and they know why, for the most part. The three common reasons customers cited for using a check cashier over a bank were one, cost, two, transparency, and three, service. So let's take a look at cost real quick. Many of us don't know what our bank costs us, what fees are attached to the bank. Many of us uh, you know, don't necessarily have any fees because we keep minimum balances or, or whatever. But the check cashing place will charge a buck and a half to pay a bill, 89 cents to buy a money order, and just under 2% of the face amount to cash a check. 
Now, you can say, well, geez, I wouldn't pay 2% to cash a check. But you think about it, you take a check to a bank to cash, and they're not going to give you cash, not unless you got cash in your account already to back it up. They want to hold that check till it clears. If you have no accounts at the bank, they, they, they won't even cash it for you. So by using a check cashing store, people are buying time. They can cash that check and immediately get money. When it comes to money orders, 89 cents, uh, this lady checked around New York, ranged anywhere from $5 to $10 for a money order from a bank. Ever get a money order? What do they cost around here? It's been so, so long. I normally get them at the post office. Yeah. And a couple bucks, I think. Okay. So more than 89 cents. Yes. Okay. I don't think I've ever gotten a money order. But uh, so what they're doing is is, is buying time. If, if uh, you have a small business, you're a contractor or something, you get paid with a check, you got to pay your workers, you got to pay for your supplies. You can't wait three, five, seven days for that check to clear. It's worth the 2% to immediately get your money. Is 2% high? Um, depends on how you look at it. These companies are putting the cash out right now. What if the check bounces? Then they got some work to do to get their money. Bank has no risk. They hang on to the check, hang on to your money until it clears. If it never clears, you never get your money. Transparency was number two. The fees at a check cashing store are right there on the wall. You don't know what they are at a bank. Finally, service. People felt like they were being better served at the check cashing store. They come back every week, every other week. They get to know the people, and uh, they get good service. Now, are there bad people in this business, people that want to rip people off, take advantage of them, screw them over? Sure. But that's the case in every business. And if word gets out that one particular store rips you off and another store doesn't, these people are smart enough to go to the store that doesn't rip them off. Trouble with uh, regulations from people at the state and federal level, they assume these people are too stupid to make a, a smart decision for them, their business, and their family. The fact is, they know exactly how to spread, uh, stretch a dollar, and they know what's best for themselves. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this the views station. expressed on this Listeners program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC registered investment advisor.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 